Awesome. Well, it feels like an it's exciting uh, time to be at Vintage, but it also feels like a very exciting time to be uh, alive with Valentine's Day and the start of Len and Chinese New Year, and there's a lot going on, isn't there? It's super exciting. But I have a quick question for you. If you're feeling brave and you prepared the shout thing out, what's one thing um, that you really love about living in LA? The weather. The weather. Clearly not this week, uh, but yes, thank you. <laughs> Sorry? Food, excellent. Yeah. Anything else? Beaches. Come on. Anything else? Church. Whoever you are over there, I love you. Uh, something for everybody. Like it's amazing being in LA. And and I thank you to whoever just shouted out food a minute ago. Like when I moved to LA, that wasn't necessarily what I expected coming to the city. That was not what I thought I was coming for. But there is something amazing about food within LA County, isn't there? I discovered this week that there are over 650 restaurants in Pasadena alone. That's just in the city of Pasadena. I think if you took that out across the whole of LA, you'd probably have enough restaurants for every day of your life without repeat. I live in Arcadia and and uh, especially in Chinese New Year this year, this week, it's like just being in the Far East. It's incredible what you get to eat. Um, I've also discovered since you moved, since moving to the U.S., that it's not just the different restaurants; it's the choice when you do go to a, a restaurant. I think when we'd been in the city for about two days, we had some family helping us move in five years ago. Uh, we went to like a pizza place because we were tired and we were like, let's just get some classic American food. So we went and, and we went and joined the line at the pizza place. And I was just so tired. I was like, just give me like a pepperoni pizza or something. But it was one of those pizza places where you're not allowed to do that. You know, where you have to make at least 37 choices before you're allowed your pizza. It was one of those places. Like by the time my pizza arrived, I was exhausted. But like there is something about specific food for everyone that, that is um, amazing. I thought coming to LA would be a bit more like, you know, a bit more like the Baywatch thing, beaches, sunsets, kind of like being healthy. Turns out mostly driving and eating. <laughs> driving and eating, that's what I do. I'm quite good at both of them, just so you know. Uh, if there was a spiritual like giftedness toward feasting, I might even consider myself anointed, actually. Uh, I, I like it um, a lot. And I'm very glad about that because, you know, Jesus feasted. He feasted. Um, it was said of Jesus that he came eating and drinking. And did you know, he left us behind bread and wine and a table to remember him by. Like, food is awesome. But... We also know that's not exactly everything that Jesus did. And as I'm an apprentice to Jesus, like many of you are, I am someone who is seeking that my life would be orientated and organized around these three basic goals, the three basic goals that we've been looking at through this series, which are these, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to live at he, as he did. Basically, our task is to apprentice ourselves under Jesus, to adopt his overall lifestyle, to basically revolve around the way that he chose to live in order that we might more fully become the people that we were designed to be and be transformed like him. Now, the great news, of course, of that is that that includes feasting. Like, oh, I'm so excited. Jesus liked food. I like food. This is really excellent. But the other news is that Jesus also fasted. Jesus started his life, his uh, ministry, with 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. When the devil came to tempt him, they actually said, he actually said to the devil, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And all through the biographies of Jesus, there are these stories of him choosing to fast. But yeah, it seems to me that like living in the West in the 21st century, like we're good at feasting, like we're good at that. But fasting, like really, does it have a place anymore? I certainly think you are much more likely to hear about fasting from a Muslim or a fitness guru or a wellness expert, or in my case, like repeated social media advertising that like bombards me every day now that I've reached a certain age and they think I obviously need it. Like, but you're not likely to hear about fasting within a Christian context. We live in a moment where like, to talk about food is actually deeply problematic because of the relationships that some of us have with food and eating disorders and challenges of diets. Like, to talk about fasting seems hard. But what if? What if we were missing out on one of the most important practices in the way of Jesus? And so our task this morning is we're going to bravely, even on Chinese New Year, we're going to take a moment to speak about fasting. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn them to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to hear some beautiful words from Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed three immediate things from the passage Mark just read. Here's the first one, verse 18. Jesus assumes that followers of the way will fast. He says in verse 18, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast or if it feels like it or you need to lose some weight or you want to get more healthy. He says when you fast, followers of Jesus do fast. Secondly, it's interesting to note that this is not an outward religious symbol to try and be good or impress other people. He actually says in verse 17 that we're to be almost hide our times of fasting. And then thirdly, maybe the most interesting of all, is that when you fast, the Father will reward you. Now that sounds maybe just a little bit religious and a bit weird, but maybe you might rephrase it to say like this, there is a gift waiting on the other side of fasting. There's something for us when we fast. So let's talk. Um, Let's talk a little bit about history to start with, fasting 101 on a Sunday morning. Fasting is involved in every single one of the major religions of the world. Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, most religious, indigenous, spiritual practices. But the first mention anywhere in human history of fasting actually comes in the Old Testament. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, it says he fasted for 40 days. And then off the back of it, all of Israel was invited to fast every year on the Day of uh, Atonement. 
Today, even in that world, it's called Yom Kippur, and today, Jews fast every year. Uh, There are stories throughout the Old Testament of fasting. In fact, all the major characters all fasted. Moses, David, Samuel, Esther, the prophets. By the time of Jesus, it was common for uh, people who followed Jewish practices or the way of Jesus to fast two times every single week, from getting up in the morning until sundown. And the early Christians continued this practice. If you uh, read the Didache, which is like an extra biblical text, which tells about Christian history, um, it says that basically Christians following the way fasted two times every single week and also two full days before anyone was allowed to be baptized. Like almost all the early church fathers speak about fasting and, of course, most famously, Lent, which is the the period from now, this week, Ash Wednesday, up until Easter, the whole of the church would fast. Now, today, it's taken a little bit of a different meaning, but the practice of Ramadan, which we hear about in the Muslim world, was actually came out of the Christian tradition of Lent. Fasting was everywhere. And in fact, all the way through church history, all the way up until the last kind of little small uh, number of years, Christians have taken this very, very seriously. Followers of Jesus used to fast a lot, and it was considered just as central to the way of Jesus as reading your Bible, going to church, praying. And in fact, I think if you go outside of the West, and some of us here are not from like the West, we're from other parts of the world, it still is a massive deal if you come from the Eastern Orthodox Church Coptic Christians in Egypt, the Dalit in India, in Iran, or even many parts of Africa, people fast regularly. African churches often start their years together with whole church and whole community fasts. My point, I suppose, is that fasting has always been seen as one of the most essential and powerful of the practices of Jesus. But arguably, it is also probably the single most neglected one in the modern Western church. Is there anything for us? Does it matter? Should we care? Well, I loved what St. Basil the Great, who's like the saint with the very best name ever, as far as I can tell, right? This is what he, he had to say. He said, fasting gives birth to prophets. She strengthens the powerful. Fasting makes lawgivers wise. She's a safeguard to the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, a weapon for the brave, a discipline for champions. Fasting repels temptations, anoints for godliness. She's a companion for sobriety, the crafter of a sound mind. In war, she fights bravely. In peace, she teaches tranquility. Those are big words written actually in the third century after Christ. But let's talk some more basics for a minute, right? Okay, what actually is fasting? What are we even talking about? Well, let's talk about some things that it's definitely not. Fasting is not abstinence. Fasting is not abstinence. Now, you often hear people say, don't they? I'm fasting from social media, or I'm fasting from like eating too much junk food or Netflix or whatever. That's abstinence. Now, there's a really great Christian tradition around that, and it's good, and it's godly, and it's brilliant, but it's not fasting. It's not called fasting in scripture. In the same way, fasting is not a restricted diet. Uh, some of us grew up with things like the Daniel fast, where you, know, you eat a vegan diet for a period of time. Well, it's interesting that at no point in the book of Daniel is that ever referred to as a fast. That also isn't a fast. Fasting is something different. 
And if you're ready for a PhD level description of fasting that will blow your minds, this is what it is. Fasting is not eating food. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you remember that one? Okay, we'll, we'll live with that definition, okay. And normally in a fast, people drink water, but not always is the case. Um, fasts have different lengths. Throughout scripture, people fasted for one day, two days, four days, seven days, 21 days, 40 days. Um, when do you fast? Well, clearly there's something of rhythm that's in, baked into the Christian culture, into the life of faith. But actually, it's also, in fact, even more commonly described as a response. People fasted out of response to something that was um, happening. Uh, if you uh, look at 1 Samuel 31, you see this little bit where King Saul dies. And it just simply says the entire nation fasted for seven days. Um, in Jonah chapter 3, when Nineveh is warned of the coming destruction from the prophet and the whale and the thing, the king calls for a citywide fast and they're spared. And then in Esther chapter 4, when the Hebrew people are threatened with genocide, Queen Esther calls for three days fast and they are saved. So there's like this point where we fast out of rhythm, out of discipline about who we are, but we also fast out of response to something that's going on because we want God to move. Do you fast in community or do you fast alone? Well, interestingly, actually people do both. Uh, people sort of misread the Matthew 6 passage that we just heard from Mark, uh, from Mark as being basically a command never to tell anybody that you've ever fasted. It's like secret between you and God. There's a posture that's good there, but actually throughout scripture, whole communities fasted. In fact, not only whole communities, but often like children and animals were included in the fast. I thought this week, probably my children and their pet hamster might not love that too much. But whole communities together chose um, to fast. But here's the most important question, right? the one that we actually need to wrestle with. Like, why? <laughs> why would you do that? Why not eat all the most amazing food that's available to you? Why would you not eat? Well, here are four, maybe five, of just simple reasons um, to help us get us started in our conversation. Number one, to offer ourselves to Jesus. Number two, to grow in holiness. Number three, to amplify our prayers. And then number four, to stand with the poor. Now this morning, I'm just going to give you the, I'm going to give you the top of all of those. Um, but if your community group is going to take this as one of the modules that you're going to study together, then you'll get a chance to do four weeks on these four topics. But let's think about the first one uh, for a moment, to offer ourselves to Jesus. So I said a minute ago that um, the early church continued to fast twice every week. But what I didn't say is that they moved from Tuesdays and Thursdays to Wednesdays and Fridays. Anyone prepared to offer a guess as to why they might have moved to Wednesdays and Fridays? It's not a trick question. Not Sabbath. Okay, good news, I'll tell you. Uh, Wednesday was the day that Jesus was betrayed, and Friday was the day that Jesus was crucified. Basically, in a very bodily way, a primal level, the New Testament Christians wanted to do what the Old New Testament calls participate in the sufferings of Christ. They intentionally wanted to join with that pattern that Jesus lived, in a sense, uh, like a dying and rising, but more specifically, death to self, followed by life in God. It wasn't because they hated bodies or they thought everyone should be really miserable, but actually, and here's the crux of it, 
They had a deep hunger for Jesus. It was about having a hunger to participate in the transforming work of Jesus to become close to him. Basically like clearing the decks, clearing the table, clearing the time to meet with Jesus. The um, Baptist pastor, John Piper, he calls fasting whole body hungering for God. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense, right? Because hunger, what is hunger? Like hunger is that deep like yearning and desire to get hold of something like that you don't have. And in fasting, that desire for food becomes a desire for Jesus. That's why New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls it body talk. It's like a way of praying and yearning with your whole body and not just your mind. It's like, God, I love you. God, I need you. God, I hunger after you. Would you come and meet me? Now, suppose the truth is that through a lot of life, we don't, we don't sort of feel that hunger for God. Or maybe you do. But I think a lot of us don't when you know, life is just churning through and we've got stuff to do and we're going through the motions and we're trying to multitask. Like hungering after God is not something that we probably feel deep within us. But fasting is a way that we can wake up to that sense of yearning. I don't know how many of you watched the film Wally recently. It's an old one now. Um, but if you don't know the story, right, basically humans trash the earth and turn it into like a dumpster. And then they have to go and live in this like cruise space liner thing in the sky. I mean, it's, it's a kid's movie, but it's like deeply scary and profound all at the, all at the same time. Um, but basically the humans, as you can see on this picture, like they go for several hundred years. They lose the ability to walk and do anything. They basically live on these like zoned out like space chairs floating around this cruise ship with massive screens in front of them eating fast food. And they're like totally out of it. They like live in this sort of like slightly comatose state where they don't really know what's going on any, anymore. And it's quite scary, but it's profound because it sort of speaks to the fact that if we're not careful, we can do that too. That we can go through life not really being in tune with what's going on. We're just sort of going through the day-to-day motions of things, being bombarded by news and colors and entertainment. Well, fasting is a beautiful thing in so much as it helps wake you up to what is going on in reality. And if you've any of you have fasted recently, I, I did this week for the first time for a, a while. And I can tell you, when you fast, you wake up pretty fast. Like when you have that like hunger inside you, you don't get to slob around. Something wakes up deep within you. And it sort of makes, um, it makes theological sense, really. Because if you think about um, like in Romans 12, 1, famously, Paul writes this, doesn't he? He says, I urge you. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, like holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, if you notice what he says, like he doesn't say offer your words or your heart. The word is in Greek is soma. And it's literally like all that you are, like all that you are, offer it to God. 
I don't know about you, but I mean, I grew up in a sort of church trans- tradition which was all about give your heart to Jesus. Anyone like that? You know, and it's good, right? I mean, there's, there's something great about emotions and feelings and connection. Lovely. But the Christian picture is actually way bigger than that. It's to give everything to God. Everything. I think, you know, if you read through Scripture, you sort of actually have this truth that we don't really have a body it's not like you're a head and a heart and a body. It's actually that you are a body. Or more, more correctly put, you have a body which is part of who you are. I mean, think about like, the most fundamental basic Christian doctrines, right? The doctrine we call the incarnation. God came in a body, Jesus, to save our bodies, That's a doctrine we call the resurrection. And one day in future, what happened to Jesus' body when he was resurrected on the third day will happen to all of our bodies. We will be resurrected from the dead. And so therefore, if you take those basic fundamental building blocks, it sort of speaks to the fact that actually our bodies matter. I mean, even if... They're a bit broken and they don't quite look like we want them to look and they don't quite do what we want them to do. Like bodies matter, what we put in them, what we choose to do with them, where we take them, all of it is part of the story of discipleship. Especially when you think about like what said in 1 Corinthians 6 when it says this, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own, You were bought at a price, so therefore honor God with your bodies. That's pretty challenging, isn't it, right? I mean, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In fact, not even in a beautiful, big old building like this. The Spirit dwells in you. So it matters what we do with our bodies, which is why, therefore, go back to Romans 12, it says, in view of God's mercy, In view of the fact that God gave up everything for us, gave up his body, gave up his sacrifice, his life, we offer our bodies back to Jesus as an act of worship. It's our true and our proper worship. We give up food in fasting because he gave up everything. We offer our body in devotion because he already gave his for our salvation. It's pretty strong, isn't it? It's kind of interesting. Now, if you, if you take all that that's to one side, let's just, you know, very quickly talk about the very practical benefits to fasting. I'm not a health scientist. I'm not a medical professional. Some of you are. I'll try and stay in my lane as best as I can. But here's interesting. One of the things that you will learn if you ever look at fasting properly is that if you don't eat for a significant period of time, eventually your body goes into this thing called autophagy which is like a way that the body starts to like deal with all of the dead old, like what they call zombie cells within you. It's like, some doctors call it like a way that your body starts to take out the trash. It's a bit gross, but it's like the body starts to sort of eat itself, all the old dead cells. And medical professionals are like increasingly going, this is an incredibly helpful thing for the body to regenerate and be healthy. If you do a little bit of Googling and you do this on your own time, if you want to, you'll see things like, Increased metabolism and reducing weight and lowering insulin levels and inflammation and blood pressure and strengthening immune systems and reducing heart rates and slowing aging and just on and on and on and on. Now, that's not the point of talking about it, 
But it's fascinating to me that this thing that modern scientists are now going, oh, that's really good for you, is something that God baked into the very rhythm of life at the beginning of the story. We just have forgotten about it along the way. Fascinating, fascinating to me. Which takes us, I think, into the, that was just a side point, sorry, but side point. Number two, the main problem number two, is that to fast is to grow in holiness. To grow in holiness. Um, This is what Pope Benedict says. He says, in our day, fasting seems to have lost something of its spiritual meaning and has taken on, in a culture characterized by the search for material well-being, a therapeutic value for the care of one's body. Fasting certainly brings benefits to physical well-being, but for believers, it is in the first place a therapy to heal all that prevents them from conformity to the will of God. Right? It's not even supposed to be practical. It's spiritual. It does something. But how? Like, how does that work? Well, if you think about this for a minute, I, I think um, whatever else you think about the world today, and I love our city, I love being alive, it's amazing. We do live in a cultural moment which is framed by get what you want and get it now. Right? I mean, when I moved to LA, I had to learn the art of coffee ordering. Right? I thought you could say, I'd like a coffee, or, which I thought I was very sophisticated, I'd like a cappuccino. Turns out that's not acceptable in LA anymore. Your coffee order needs to have at least one complete sentence of information that will provide at least seven or eight different directions to the coffee server. That's great. But if you sort of take that to everywhere, we live in this sort of cultural moment which says just whatever you think you need, whatever you want, whatever you think you've got a hunger for, get it exactly what you want. Don't wait. Get it now. Even if you can't afford it, get it on credit. Even if you can't go out to the store, order it in. Just get it. And it's great on many levels. But if you think about how that frames itself in regards to food, it's almost a little bit, if you're not careful, like what little children do when they go to a candy store, right? Or they see like the dessert buffet at a wedding or something. It's like, ah, sugar, like just get more and get more and get more until like being violently ill everywhere, right? You can have too much of a good thing, it turns out, when it's like, like that. And part of the the journey of maturing, of children becoming adults, is that along the way they have to learn some restraint. They have to learn a bit of discipline. They have to make good choices in order to be wise and be healthy. And if they don't, then actually just in pure food terms, that leads to really significant implications to do with health. But it's quite interesting to me that if you go back through human history, like what, what the ancients realized along the way was that how you treat food and how you treat the body is almost a bit like a gateway, the choices you make with food, to how you treat everything else. If you remember back to the medievals, they had those seven deadly sins. It's all very serious. And not in the Bible, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Um, but the first of the dev- dead- seven deadly sins was greed or gluttony. And the reason they put it there, it seems, is that because they saw that if you, if you could get control over how you ate and the things you put in your body, you'd have much better resources and self-defenses to how you dealt with everything else in life. But equally, if you had a bad relationship to food, if it lowered your self-defenses in your choices to do with food, that actually that would have a knock-on effect in your ability to make good choices in every other area of your life. 
fascinating. That was like 500 years ago they came out more. But when we fast, we're actually taking a disciplined choice to have a good relationship with what we put in. And therefore, we're also, as well as building self-defenses, more importantly, we're opening up ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We're opening up ourselves to the work of God. Because willpower will obviously only ever get you to breakfast or wherever it might be, right? But the work of the Holy Spirit that comes when we open ourselves up, like all the spiritual practices, is what will ultimately transform ourselves. Fasting, in a way, reorders our desires into something more um, beneficial. Now, let me just, quick side point. Um, When you fast, you might not feel something. Uh, At least if you've not fasted for a while and you suddenly start to fast, you might have an incredible experience of the Holy Spirit where you'll lay down in his presence and you're like, this is incredible. Most likely, you'll feel hangry. (laughs) At least at first. At least at first. Just warning you along the way. People I know who fast regularly love it, think it's one of the most spiritually enlightened things. Intermittent fasting can lead to hangriness. Just, just kind of putting that there. Okay. But the promise is not feelings. The promise is actually that you would grow in formation and transformation to be more like the healed person that Jesus has for your life. Okay. Okay. Two more. Last, last few minutes. I want to just give you these other two. Um, when we fast, uh, it amplifies our prayers. Uh, interesting thing to say. But if you look throughout scripture, you will see that prayer and fasting go hand in hand all over the place. I mean, you can fast without praying. That is hangriness. I think that's the definition of it. You can pray without fasting. We do it all the time. But there's something that happens when people pray and fast together that it's almost like a chemical reaction. It's almost like an exothermic reaction. But something happens. I don't have a science like bit for you on it. But if you look all the way through human history, if you look all the way through the Bible, you will see time and again where people pray and fast and God does something. He just does. Over and over again, wars cease, people are transformed, provision comes, revivals break out when people pray and fast. It just happens over and over again. And I think in Pali, if anything, it's probably to do with the fact that it's both a sacrifice, but it's like a spiritual sharpness to our prayers. I mean, if you think about like how you feel after you've eaten a Christmas lunch or like a Thanksgiving meal, if you're like me, it's like state just off a coma that we lie on a couch and you don't just like, Ugh, right? Fasting is the opposite. It's like being awake. It's being in tune. It's being alive to what's going um, on. When we fast, we're clearing the deck. We're moving things out of the way. We're intentionally focusing on God. I just say, you know, if you, if you have a prayer life and you're like, it just doesn't seem to be working and I can't get past this thing and nothing's happening, my simple question is, have you tried fasting? Have you tried fasting? Okay, and then final one. I'd love to talk about all these for hours, but we don't have time, sadly, and you wouldn't want that. Um, fasting is one of the ways we can stand with the poor. We stand with the poor. Um, there's an amazing bit in Isaiah 58, right, where the people of God, they're having this like, big act of worship and the singing and the fasting and the praying and they're doing all the stuff and it all looks very impressive. But then in verse 6, God says this. He says, is this 
not the kind of fasting I've chosen. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke. This is a kind of fasting I want, fasting that is deeply linked to justice, to how human beings are treated. That was the problem in Isaiah. They were ignoring people. They were exploiting people. They were treating people awfully. And if you think about it, like so often, like actually food and justice are linked a lot, aren't they? You know, I think um, today, if you did a bit of a count of people on earth, about 10% of the world's population live in extreme poverty. Less than two US dollars a day, basically malnutrition, struggling to eat. In the US, actually that number's higher. It's not less, it's higher. It's about 11.6% of the population of the US live in extreme poverty. And many are ethnic minorities and children who are the most at risk groups. At the same time as all of that being true, the average family of four, apparently, throws away about $1,500 a year of food. In, in the US, we throw away about 80 to 160 billion pounds of weight, pounds of food. It's just wasted. So like on one side, you've got like this incredible like scarcity where people are literally starving. And on the other side, you've got a reality where we don't know what to do with food and it's become so mundane, we just throw it away because we've got too much of it. In that, in that simple context, we could ask the question, well, is there a practice in the way of Jesus that could get us a more healthy view of food, that could help us to understand and appreciate what we have? And the answer is yes, fasting. Fasting is just one of the ways where we can reframe, because I, I don't know about you, I I'm, know I'm, I've talked about myself fasting, and I don't want you to think I get this right a lot, I don't fast enough. But this week, I took a, a bit of time out to fast, and I tell you, when you do that, your relationship to food is radically different. You know, when you're just bombarded by food, like, it's like you don't even think about it, right? It's like, oh, what am I going to eat tonight? Oh, just whatever. When you haven't eaten for a long period of time, when you see an In-N-Out burger, you cry. <laughs> Honestly, you cry, as I might have done yesterday. Um, it changes you because you're starting to think about it. Now, those are just four reasons to get you started, maybe five. And I just want to invite you, as we start Lent Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, the start of Lent on the run-up to Easter, Maybe, like just maybe, you might want to include this in your rule of life. I'm not going to ask you whether you have or you haven't. But what if, what if throughout Lent you might just take one day a week from waking up in the morning till sundown to not eat? Or once a month if that's too much. Like what if you just tried it? Don't try it once, but try it a few times just to see um, what God would do. If you've got a very set set of reasons why you would never do this and it sounds awful, may I just invite you to be open to the voice of the Holy Spirit for what he might um, say to you. It's not about religion. It's not about trying to impress God. But it's about coming more deeply into his presence so that he can transform us. Should we pray? Father, thank you. 
Thank you that when you were designing humanity, you created so many wonderful things to help us to more fully become who we're meant to be and to follow the way of Jesus. Father, even just now, may you please speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're not a God of shame or judgment. You're not, you're not out to try and make us feel bad. But actually, Lord, you long for our healing and for our wholeness. And so, Lord, even just now in the stillness for a moment, would you just come and whisper those words of truth and love to us? of what you want to say to us today. Come Holy Spirit.